We conclude considering the life of Joseph today by reading Genesis 49, beginning in verse 28, through the end of chapter 50. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph. His brothers and his father's flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And they, uh, there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is, grievous. This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us. And pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he com comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. 
he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were accounted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This morning we, there we go. This morning we are closing our sermon series on the life of Joseph. And after last week's sermon, you might wonder what else is there to talk about. We saw Joseph and his brothers reunited, and his father brought into Egypt, and they have been provided for in this famine. What's left? Well, according to the New Testament, we have not yet gotten to Joseph's finest hour. If you look at the New Testament in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith, it says that Joseph's finest hour was whenever he gave these very last words, and by faith he gave directions concerning his bones, that they would carry his bones with them out of the land of Egypt to the promised land when God visited them. So everything up to this point isn't really remembered. It's this moment that Joseph is. And then one of the real questions about Joseph's life in this whole story is, will Joseph choose to be an Egyptian or will he choose to be an Israelite? You have the text going all this time talking about how Egyptian Joseph is in his dress and his marriage, his children, his language, his position, his practices and the customs that he's adopted. And now Jacob, his father, is dead, and so who's the patriarch? Joseph is. And will he fade back into an Egyptian culture, or will he truly become an Israelite and embrace the promises of God? But for Joseph, that's a challenge. Because the real question is, in the midst of all of the hurt and the pain and the betrayal that he experienced in his life, How will he come to lay claim to the promises of God and the God that is offered to him? I think that same question in Joseph's story is the same question that's presented to you. It's a question that's presented to all of us. We are offered these promises, yet in the midst of all of the pain and the heartache and the sorrow that we have experienced in our life and all of that loss, will we come to terms with it and will we lay claim to the promises that God has given us. And some of you might say, well, I don't have a lot of pain in my life. And to that, I would say, well, everything that we talk about today should come easy for you then. And if you do, you say, yes, I want to lay hold of those promises and I'm trying. Then how might we walk with Joseph in his finest hour? Because we see Joseph truly become an Israelite and he lives with this single-minded devotion to God's purposes. And how is it that he turned all, that all of that pain that he experienced turned into this single-minded devotion, this single purpose for his life? And to understand how Joseph got there, we're going to look at our passage in this situation uh, with three contrasts. We're going to look at three different ways that Joseph could have responded, but he responds in a different way. He responds in a way that's actually informed by 
what God has in store for them. So we're going to look at manipulation versus mourning. We're going to look at reinvention versus redemption. And we're going to look at punishment versus provision. And with alliteration like that, how can we not expect God to just show up this morning? My goodness. We're looking at manipulation. It took me all week. Manipulation versus mourning. Reinvention versus redemption. And punishment versus provision. And so to the first, manipulation versus mourning. In verses 15 to 18, something's changed. Joseph's brothers are scared to death. They are afraid of what Joseph might do to them now that Jacob, their father, has died. There's something that's not the way it used to be. Something now is off between them, and they're afraid that all of Joseph's forgiveness was actually just really a facade, and that now that Jacob is dead, the only reason he's kept them alive is because he didn't want to cause pain to his father. And so, now that his father's out of the way, Joseph is going to take care of some unfinished business. And so they try to deal with this situation by manipulating him. They concoct a story that's not true. Jacob telling the brothers that they then tell a messenger to go tell Joseph. They can't even come face him face to face. They concoct a story, and then when that doesn't seem to work, they bow down before Joseph and they say, Joseph, we are your slaves. But the question is, are they really seeking a relationship with Joseph here? Are they really seeking a relationship with their brother? Yes, they admit wrongdoing, but do they seem truly sorrowful? You have to ask the brothers as they're bowing down before him, you know, to say, brothers, are you bowing down here before Joseph for his sake or for your own? Because they're trying to manipulate this situation because they don't like how this situation reminds them of their guilt. It brings their past back up to them and they have to face it and try and think about a way that they can move this, move out of this position of their guilt. They don't like how it makes them feel, and so they want to sweep this situation under the rug and move on as fast as possible. And yet, how loving is it that they would try to move on as fast as possible as though this situation is just a one-time forgiveness kind of thing? Trying to kill your own brother. Selling him into slavery. How loving is it when we try to manipulate and move on as fast as possible because we don't like the way our guilt makes us feel? Well, I said I'm sorry. It's like, oh, I feel so loved. Or we say, well, you know, we think I don't like how I I feel guilty because I did this, so I'm going to offer some nice things and do a few nice things this week and try and offer something as a slave this week to try and move on as fast as possible. The truth is we manipulate all the time instead of doing what Joseph does. They're unwilling to see the reality of what they've done once again, and they want to move on, but Joseph responds completely differently in this situation. And if you think about it, the dream has come full circle, has it not? We started this story with Joseph, 17 years old, with the dream that his brothers would bow down before him, and here we are all these years later. And the 17-year-old version of Joseph would have loved this situation where his brothers are bowing down, groveling before him. But we don't see that Joseph. What does Joseph do? He mourns. He weeps. I think this hurt him. To say, really, after all these years, we can just sweep this under the rug. After all these years, it's come to this where you can't even face me. You can't even look me in the eye. And after all these years, there's still this distance between them. 
And I think he mourns. Probably felt like being thrown in the pit all over again, which is, Joseph, we don't like how you make us feel. And we're going to try and deal with you. And why does this passage actually mention the mourning of Joseph, his weeping? It brings it up a number of times. And really, in fact, why does the Bible stop sometimes and mention these moments of mourning and weeping? Why does it mention Elijah mourning and weeping over the dead body of the widow's son before he was resurrected? Why does it spend so much time talking about Nehemiah mourning and weeping over the broken walls of Jerusalem and the crumbled walls of the temple before God moves in miraculous fashion to rebuild it? Why does it tell us that Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died and he mourns right before he resurrected him? Why does it tell us about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and mourning over its condition before his own resurrection? The truth is, in mourning, it's a powerful, powerful place to be. Because it's in mourning that we are willing to stop and take an honest look at the damage and destruction and weight of sin. It's in mourning that we are willing to stop trying to hide it and sweeping it under the rug, and we're willing to see it as it really is. And sin loves to hide and survive by being swept under the rug. We've been doing that from the beginning. Sin comes into the world, and what do Adam and Eve do? They try to hide it by putting fig leaves over them, and they cover it. And what are they really trying to do? They're really trying to say, let's move on. Let's move on. Nothing to see here. Let's continue on. Let's sweep this under the rug and let's continue to believe that we can continue on just as we were before and this is no big deal. We're going to deal with it by not dealing with it. But then when God comes along, he mourns and he takes an honest look at their sin and he's grieved over it. That's why the curses and the judgment of God is written in poetry. It's a dirge. It's a lament over what has happened to say, Adam and Eve, do you have any idea how much pain you have brought into this world? Do you have any clue what you have just done? Do you know what it will cost to fix this? And throughout the scriptures, you have this almost burning question of the scriptures is, will anyone stop and ever mourn over the brokenness and reality of the situation that we are in called the fall and sin and death? And it's in this position that Joseph shows us the better way because it's in his mourning that we share in the broken heart of God over the reality of sin. And just like those other stories, mourning always precedes a powerful act of God's intervention. Are you willing to mourn this morning? Are you willing to mourn the situation of your marriage? You're willing to mourn the effects of the addiction that you continue to struggle with, that you pretend there's not any consequences to. If not, then you're not ready for God to show up. Because a broom and a rug will do just fine. And yet you were made for so much more. And in verses 19 through 20, we see this other opportunity for Joseph. Reinvention or redemption. So often when we are hurt and we're sinned against, we respond by sinning ourselves. We respond by not taking our hurt to God and asking Him to deal with it and heal us because only He can. We essentially take the situation into our own hands and we take matters under our own control and we try to reinvent ourselves by pretending that we're something we're not. 
Pain causes us to reinvent ourselves into some version of ourselves that really isn't true, and yet we think it is. So one of those ways is that we reinvent ourselves when we try to minimize the hurt and the pain that we experience. We say, oh, it's not bad. Yeah, there's some hurt there. Something was wrong. But I'm not really that hurt. I've moved on. It's made me stronger because what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I will become a person that gets revenge by pretending it doesn't hurt that bad and using it to become a better version of myself. I see stories quite a bit now, more regularly, of uh, stories of revenge weight loss. These stories where you'll see this before and after picture of someone where they've gone and undergone this pretty incredible transformation where they've lost all this weight. And usually what happened in these stories is that this person was cheated on by a spouse or a significant other. And so out of that pain, they decided to get their life in order. And now the article just celebrates and says, look at them now. Part of me really wonders, are they really free? Just because they lost a little bit of weight. Have they really dealt with that pain? And I would say no. I would say they are absolute, their life is consumed with what the person that hurt them thinks about them. Their life is consumed with not dealing with the pain and trying to become something stronger. And they're saying, hey, look what you missed out on. Look what you could have had. Look how much stronger I am. Look how the pain has not overcome, overcome me. And I will punish you for it because you can have this. And is this person that minimizes their pain ready for God to show up? I would say no. It's because they have no need for them. Because they can overcome their pain just fine. Because it's not that big of a deal. We also try to reinvent ourselves when we maximize the pain and the hurt. We try to maximize the hurt by trying to squeeze everything we possibly can, can out of it. And we try and deal with the hurt by making the person pay for it. And if that's how you live, the truth is you can never really let your hurt go. And you can never really stop reminding the one who hurt you all the ways that they have. You've hurt too much to be forgiven. You've hurt me too much to move on. And so you must pay me back. You must pay me back and fix this, though you never will. But the truth is this person is just simply afraid of true relationship. And the idea of a relationship of self-giving is incredibly scary and threatening. So the way that this person deals with relationships is that you try to keep yourself from being hurt further. And so you focus on all the ways that you've been hurt. And you live in a way that reminds others of their failures and how they will never live up to your standards. But the truth is, you're enslaved to the one who hurts you because you are desperately waiting for them to give you something they never can, which is payment. They will never repay what they took. It's the way sin works. That's why forgiveness is so hard. How do you know if you are that person? Well, even if someone comes to you and confesses and repents and apologizes, you can't accept it because it's never enough. And is this person ready for God to show up in their lives? 
You have to say no because they have, again, no need for God. Because they will find healing by making the one who hurt them pay for it. Although they never can. And the issue with both of these situations is that with minimizing our pain or maximizing our pain, we just try to reinvent ourselves into some cheap version of God where we decide what the payment will be and we decide what will heal us. And it never works. And in Joseph's response, he doesn't minimize it and say, hey, we're good, no big deal. And he doesn't maximize it and walk them through and remind them of everything they ever did that caused them all of that pain. He's just simply honest about it. What's he say? He says, yeah, you did do evil to me. I can't deny that. You did evil to me, and it hurt. But what does he go on to say? He says, but am I in the place of God? What a profoundly difficult thing to say is, yes, you did evil to me, but am I God? He's saying, I cannot determine what the punishment for what you have done should be. Judgment is not in my hands. Vengeance belongs to God alone. And then he goes even further and he says, You, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. One of the toughest verses in the entire Bible. It's one of the hardest ones to live by, is it not? It's in this verse that we often want to treat God as though he's some sort of divine custodian. That when things go bad, well, then God will kind of swoop in and sprinkle a little blessing on it and fix it. But that is not the way this story reads because God is not passive in Joseph's pain. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Which means when you wanted me in that pit, so did God. He was authoring this pain through your evil intentions. And what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is a statement. These are the words of a man that has truly faced his own past and met God there. One of the other ways that we try to reinvent ourselves that I hear quite regularly is that I'm not affected by my past at all. We talk a lot about facing your story here at Rockwell Present. Every now and then I'll hear, whether indirectly or directly, someone say, you know what, I don't, you know, why would I face my past? Why would I face my past? There's no point. It just feels like spiritual softiness. You know, I'm moving on. I've moved on. The past is the past. I'm not affected by it. But the truth is, I would just have to respond and say, do we really want to make that profession? That you were born into such a broken, sinful, destructive, deceptive, broken world that the only way it could possibly be fixed is that it required the death of God and you've somehow figured out a way to go through this world and your life completely unscathed and unaffected. That is the biggest reinvention of them all. Because the only person that was not affected by the fall was God himself. And what would Joseph say to you in that? How could he possibly make this statement that what, man meant for ev- what you meant for evil, God meant for good? How could he possibly say that if his past didn't matter? 
How could he possibly come to that conclusion if his past didn't somehow allow him to meet God? In fact, we often use that verse to kind of ignore the past and ignore the pain because we trust that God will somehow work it out somewhere in there maybe. But actually, we use it to push away from our story. And yet this very verse came to be by Joseph stepping into his story. You have to remember, he doesn't have the book of Genesis and he doesn't have this written on some mug sitting on his desk in his office. He learned this by the fact that he only had his story and he only had the promises of God, which means this statement that he said came about in real time. It came about by him searching for God. And this is what this story has been telling us all along, the importance of facing your past and finding God there. Jacob and his Jacob had to reface his past last week by having the opportunity to give up Benjamin. His brothers had to relive their past by being put in prison and having all of what they did come back to them. And it's in this verse that Joseph shows how profoundly he came to redemptive terms with his story, but you have to ask the question, where? Where did Joseph have to relive his past and all of his pain? Well, remember the funeral of Jacob. In his final words, he says, Bury my bones in Canaan, in the promised land. And I think something happened on that trip to Joseph because his brothers, when they came back, are deathly afraid of him. I think it was hard for him. For all we know, as the funeral procession traveled that long journey back to Canaan, this was the first time that he went home after all of these decades. How hard would that have been for him? To have to relive his past in a way that almost would have been overwhelming. To relive his story and to leave the palace with the caravan and he goes by the prison that he spent all of those years forgotten in. And yet God was there with him. And he would have traveled by Potiphar's house and remember the time he was taken out in handcuffs and falsely accused. And God was with him. And then whenever he goes outside the city and he looks back and he sees the city, perhaps he would remember the first time that he saw that city when he was a 17-year-old kid, scared to death of what was going to happen to him. And everyone around him was speaking speaking a language he didn't even know. And then he travels all the way back to the tomb of his father's. And certainly he would have remembered when he thought he was going to die. And he was down in the pit begging and crying out for his life while his brother sat silently eating dinner, listening to him. Can you imagine how hard that story would have been? And in that, I think Joseph relived all of the pain of his story. And I think just like his dad, he wrestled with God and he met him there. And the truth is, I don't really know what Joseph experienced. I wish I did. I don't know what it experienced for him to be able to review all of his past and to somehow say, God meant it for good. I don't know what it felt like for him, but we do know the result is that out of this, when he says what you meant for evil, God meant for good, you see Joseph coming out of that with a profound sense of purpose. And he's saying that I wouldn't change a bit of what happened to me, and I accept all of the suffering and the pain that I have been caused because that was the very place that God met me. And in meeting him, he has taken all of my pain and turned it into something precious because it was the very means by which he revealed himself to me. And these are not the words of an Egyptian. These are the words of an Israelite. One who has met the goodness of God 
And out of that, you see Joseph not punish his brothers, but he comes out of that living with a purpose and a drive for God's promises that is really staggering. Which is why sometimes it's easy to moralize Joseph because of his faith that's expressed in this. But Joseph is not the hero. The reason Joseph comes out of this with this profound devotion to God's purposes is because he met the promise giver in all of that pain. And you see him come out and he says to his brothers in his final words, he doesn't punish them. He says, I will provide for you and for your little ones all of your days. That that thing that, was pro- that I dreamed long ago, I used to want you to serve me. But it is not you who will serve me. It is I who will serve you. And I will seek your good. The same way that God has shown me his goodness. And these are not easy men to provide for. These men are attempted murderers and some of them are murderers. This is not the Cleaver family we're talking about. These are hard men. And yet he says, I will provide for you and show you the goodness that I have been shown. And we continue to see his purpose, his drive, whenever he gives directions concerning his bones. And this all week stuck with me. It kind of got in my crawl. This thing that Joseph says to give his bone, to directions about his bones. Because just like his father, he says, I, you know, he gives directions concerning his bones, but Joseph's is different in that he could have gone to Canaan, but he says, no, I want to be buried here in Egypt. And I thought to myself, why? Why wouldn't he just tell him to go back and take him to the promised land? And I think, again, it's here that we see Joseph's single-minded devotion to this God that he met. Because Joseph would have had no small grave because of his position. He would not have had a roadside grave. It would have been a monument and a, a tourist attraction. This is the man who saved the world. And he knows that he uses all of his position, all of his power, and he knows the story, and he knows where Israel is. And he says, you know what? You're going to be tempted to forget your story. You're going to be tempted to be deceived. You're going to be tempted to be allured by Egypt and all of its promises, and you're going to be tempted to forget your story. But you remember, you don't belong here. And every time you see my grave, I want you to tell your children about it and to remember it, that you don't belong here. You belong with the God who is good and who will surely visit you. It's in that grave that Joseph says, I know the promises that God has given me and I know the purposes that he has given me and I want to see it through all the way to the end. That even I want my dead bones pointing to the promised land and then when God visits you and carries you out of here, I want to be with you every step of the way to remind you of the goodness of the God it is that you serve. My goodness, that purpose to know that. To have that freedom and that purpose to come to terms with all of that pain and sorrow and to come out of it with such purpose to me is like a drug. I would love to experience that. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean for us? We are a collection of pain in this church. We have many blessings, and yet we are a collection of pain. We are abuse victims. We are people that have been betrayed, and we are people that have been hurt. We are people that have tremendous sorrow, and we have experienced tremendous loss. But the question is, are we going to be a people that just sweep it under the rug? Or are we willing to face the reality of sin and to point one another to the promised land and to step into that pain with one another?
What does that look like? I would encourage you to join a cultivate group. Join a cultivate group of three or four people that you can walk through life with and share your story. The directions how to do so are on the table in the back. And why would you do that? We see with Joseph's story that all of his pain allowed him not only to serve the needs of those that hurt him, but also to serve the needs of others that God has called to his purposes. And it tells us something very important about the pain that we experience and the way that we experience the redemption that God offers. Is that somewhere, the way that pain works is, you know, in suffering is that it makes life feel pointless and like, why did I go through all of that? And yet, we experience the redemption that God offers whenever we, the pain that we have experienced allows us to step into the pain of another. And we can say to another, I know what that pain feels like. Let me walk with you and point you to the promised land. I want to be with you every step of the way. And we can share with one another in the hurt and the sorrow and the loss that we have felt, the loss that we try to minimize, pretend it isn't there. We can be a people that mourn together and are willing to face the reality that we are existing in. The other thing I would encourage you to do is to sit down with a pad of paper and a pen. Go back as far as you possibly can in your memory and start writing your story. Go back the way you came. Try and find God there. Don't just use this verse, what God, man meant for evil, God meant for good, is a platitude and a reason to avoid your story. It's an invitation to dive deeply into it and to find the God that has been with you every single step of the way in all of your pleasure and in all of your pain. And the Lord your God will surely visit you. And you have hope when you do this because you are pointed to a better tomb than Joseph could have ever provided. The tomb you're pointed to is empty, Jesus has resurrected and he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm going ahead of you and no pain and no sorrow can get into the place that I am preparing. But he also says, while you are in this broken world, I will be with you in the power of my spirit. I will be with you every step of the way. Do you want to encounter him? Maybe it's time to not ignore your past. Maybe that's the place where you'll find him because that's the place where you know he's always been with you, guiding you every step of the way. And perhaps in coming to terms with our past, we might have an experience of the future with a far greater purpose than we could have ever imagined. And it all comes down to the question, will we mourn? Will we let go of vengeance? And will we seek to lay claim to the promises that we have been given? What story do you want your bones to tell? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you, even though it's so hard to see sometimes, you work all things together for good for those who love you. We trust that all the broken pieces of this world will somehow be brought together into a beautiful tapestry that only you could create. To the one who is sweeping it under the rug, would you meet him? To the one who is holding on to anger and vengeance, would you meet them? And to the one who is trying to find you amidst all of the pain, would you meet them? And to the one who ignores it, pretends it's not there, would you meet them? We trust your promises 
that you are the God that will surely meet his people. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.